Good morning, City Light. It is good to be back. I missed last week. I was gone. I heard Willie uh, preach. That guy does it all, man. He rocks behind the guitar. He can preach. Uh, He fixed this wall. There used to be doors here. I mean, literally. Jack of all trades. I do one thing in life, man. Thank you for being the blessing that you are to our community. Well, you guys may not know it. But this is the very last week of our core team season. We've been doing this uh, for 17 weeks. This is the 18th week we've met here together as a core team. So if you're new, welcome to core team season. It's going to be short-lived for you guys. But for most of you, um, this has been a fun time. This has been a good season. Uh, 17 weeks ago. We start, 18 weeks ago, we started gathering here in this place, and the wall was green, and the ceilings were dirty, and the carpet was choppy, there was no stage, we preached from a um, vacuum box, because uh, we had just got a vacuum cleaner, right, but we started to become friends, and to unite together as a family, We've served each other. We've engaged with the city around us, um, both by serving them and partying with them. Um, This has been an awesome core team season. And I want to take a moment this morning just to thank you. Because it's not been easy and it's not been simple. Um, This room didn't become like this without some work. Right? You remember the days when we carried really ugly gold chairs from that room to this room and back every week while we were waiting on these? You remember the day when the fire alarm went off and we evacuated and you all finished a service outside because um, you love Jesus and you're willing to sit on the grass to hear his word preached and sing together. Um, you served each other when you've been in need. You've given of your own resources to help one another out. You've made meals for each other. And you've made this place a place where people can say, my family's there. I want to thank you because that doesn't happen without effort. People don't give themselves to something very easily. And I want to say God has been faithful in our first 18 weeks And I want to thank you because you've responded in in love and in worship and in service for the good of our city and the glory of God. And so thank you for making core team season a really good one and preparing. And two weeks from now, um, we're going to have a big launch party and we're going to open the doors and hopefully we're going to get lights that don't belong in a, in a uh, grid, right? Um, It's going to be a a big day, Um, and we're going to officially be launched as a church, um, and you guys have gotten us there. I want to thank you, and I think it's fitting. I think it's fitting that we end our core team season by ending our our series on Philippians, and here's why I think it's fitting. Um, Doug and I have gotten to reflect the last couple weeks on how grateful we are to have a core team like this, on how grateful we are to God for bringing this group of people together and to you for giving yourselves um, to this thing that we're calling City Light Council Bluffs. In the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he does the very same thing. He writes a thank you note to 
his, one of his very first church plants and thanks them for their partnership in the gospel. And so we're going to look at what Paul says to them today. Um, this isn't a new theme in uh, Philippians. Paul mentions their generous partnership um, toward him several times in the book, but it kind of culminates here. Um, before we dive in, let's just look at a few things he said. This is going to be hard to read because our screen is small and I got a lot of words, but I'm going to read it to you. Here's some things that Paul said about the Philippians in this book. He said they had partnership in the gospel with him. They were partakers with him of grace. It was through their prayers that he acted. They were striving side by side for the faith. They served with him in the gospel. He called Epaphrodite. Epaphroditus, one of the Philippians, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. He said, join in imitating me. We've labored side by side and you have partnership with me in giving and receiving. Over and over and over again, Paul tells these people, we are partners. You have supported me. You've been generous toward me and I want to thank you. And so the end of his, of his letter here is a thank you note. Their support was unique. They partnered with him consistently and sacrificially and personally. And we're going to look at his thank you today. Here's the brief outline. All right, we're, The Philippians were generous in provision. They were generous in partnership. And their generosity pleased God. Okay? Three points. Generous in provision, generous in partnership, and their generosity pleased God. Let's look together at the text. Philippians 4, you just heard it read. We're going to read the first couple verses. Paul writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let me do a little paraphrasing here. Um, tell you a little bit about what Paul is saying. He says, I rejoice in the, in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's saying, listen, I am here under house arrest, unable to work and provide food or other, life's other necessities for myself. I can't pay rent on my own. Um, you, in light of that, have shown concern for me. You've helped me. You've partnered with me. And in that, I rejoice. And then he gives a little caveat, okay? A little qualification. Take a moment with me and reflect. Do you ever feel like you need to qualify what you're saying? You need to add a caveat. Like, what I just said might be misinterpreted. People might not get it. They might think I said something I didn't intend to say, or they might not fully understand what I did intend to say, and so I'm going to say more. Do you ever go there? I do, because I talk a lot, and I want people to know what I'm saying. And so here's an example, right? Um, if you've noticed, I might be a little bit more tan than I was last time you saw me. And that's because uh, last week, I was in the middle of a week-long trip to Mexico with my wife to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. I know you're very... Yeah. Thank you. I know what you're thinking. How did that short little hobbit-looking dude land a pretty girl like her and make it last for 10 years? 
I assure you I think the same thing every day. The only, um, the only answer I can come up with is there must be a God, right? Uh, <laughs> He does exist, and by his grace, we got to celebrate 10 years. And to do that, we went to Mexico, and it was awesome. Um, And I love to talk about it, but I felt kind of tentative and a little reserved because I feel like people might misunderstand me. They might think something that I didn't intend for them to think. Like, Eric, you know, you're on staff at a church plant that hasn't even gone public yet. Um, Ought you be taking luxury vacations? a couple weeks before we go live? Is that a good way to use your money? If you're going to go down there to an impoverished part of the world, should you stay in a place called the palace? Or ought you to be doing missions work down there? Was that a good decision? And before people say those things, I feel a little obligated to address them. Right? So when I talk about my trip, I usually say, you know, we had a really cheap honeymoon and we had no money, and so we've saved for 10 years to get there. And uh, while we were there, I read the Bible a lot, you know? And then to steal from uh, our friend Sean here, isn't any trip really a missions trip? You can talk about Jesus anywhere you go. Uh, You know, those things start coming out. You start qualifying your statements so you're not misunderstood and so you don't get misjudged. You ever go there? Do you feel that? Paul is qualifying why he rejoiced in the gift of the Philippians. And here's where he's going to go. He's rejoicing in a gift that they gave him that was made up exclusively or at least primarily of money. And he's going to talk about giving and receiving money. And critics lie in wait. And so he starts off and he says, and now at last I rejoice because you revived your concern for me. And then he starts qualifying, right? And here's what he says first. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. First, I want to say to the Philippians, you know what? I'm not saying that you revived your concern for me like um, an animal that was nearly dead and um, unable to be concerned, but then was revived back to life again. It wasn't as though your concern had almost been extinguished and extinguished and then was rekindled. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, um, you weren't indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. For some reason, we don't know what it was, their concern for Paul was unable to be expressed. They were a month's journey away at least, so maybe they just hadn't heard about it yet. Maybe they didn't have anybody to send yet. Maybe the weather was bad and they couldn't make the journey. We don't know why. But Paul says, I know that you have always been concerned for me. And I know that when the opportunity arose you came through with a revived concern. So um, his first caveat is to the Philippians. Listen, I'm not, I'm not ignoring your consistent and um, ongoing and enduring concern for me. No, I know that was there. I'm just rejoicing that it was revived and experienced at this point. But then he goes on to qualify yet again. And this is a little bit more broad. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. 
His second qualification is addressing the culture at large. Because Paul's going to talk about giving and receiving money from people in the church. People who learned the gospel from him. People for whom he was a teacher and a discipler. Now listen, in the same culture, there were other people doing similar things. There were teachers who would go out on the square and on the streets and teach their own philosophies. And they would gather students and charge them for the learning that they received. And they would amass large wealth, great wealth as a teacher. And Paul is about to say, I received a gift, but I never sold the gospel. He went to great lengths here. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I'm not in need. Paul was separating himself from these guys for a reason. Do you know who those people are who sell the gospel? They exist today, right? They're televangelists, right, who fly around and personal jets and wear nice suits and drink only purified cucumber water from Israel, right? Um, They do that. And you know what they ask people to do? They ask widows and single moms to send gifts to them in faith so that God will bless them. And anybody with any discernment knows exactly where those gifts are going. They know that what they're really asking is for a single mom to trade food from the table intended for their hungry kids for jet fuel in the tank in the hangar out back. It is wicked and it is sick. To quote my uh, good buddy from college, that ain't Jesus, right? There's no place in the church for that kind of wickedness. And so Paul is saying, I did not sell the gospel. I am not about making money for when your salvation hangs in the balance. That is not my concern. And so he adds a caveat. Not that I'm talking about being in need. Right? He was grateful for their generous gift, but he wanted to make it clear he wasn't in need. The gift wasn't required. Now think about that for a minute. This is crazy. Paul is under house arrest. When you were put under house arrest in Rome, you uh, had to pay for everything. They did not provide food. They didn't provide a place to live. They just said, tell us where you'll be and don't leave. And so he had to provide his his own rent payments, his own food, and yet he can't have a job because he literally can't leave his little apartment. And here he tells the Philippians, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I am not in need. I am not saying that I have a need. I am saying that I don't have a need, but I rejoice in your gift. How could he not be in need? How could he say that? In light of his situation, he gives us his answer. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
How could he not be in need? I've learned in every situation, I am to be content. Paul was content. How could Paul give his life to the work of gospel advancement? He was content. How could Paul live in house arrest with no way to provide for himself? He was content. How could he enter an unfamiliar city and preach an unfamiliar gospel to an unfamiliar people knowing full well he was likely to face rejection and abuse and imprisonment and maybe death? He was content. How on earth was he content in light of all that? I have a hard time being content as I lay in bed on a soft pillow and Netflix starts to buffer. Right? How did Paul do it? This is crazy. Paul says there's a secret to being content. He goes on, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here it is. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There are some t-shirt worthy statements in Philippians, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain. I count all things lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There are some t-shirt worthy statements, but none of them rivals. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. What is Paul saying? What's he talking about? Because, right, um, I'm a 49ers fan, and uh, one of the problems this last year is that uh, the quarterback had too much pressure put on him. So if I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, could I be a left tackle in the NFL for the 49ers, right? This is an important position. You got to be big and strong because the quarterback takes the snap and he turns this way, if you're right-handed, and he's got a blind side back here. And so the left tackle, you line up, you got the fastest, strongest guys on the defense right here, and you got to block the quarterback's blind side or else sacks and interceptions and fumbles and incompletions Injuries, bad things happen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want the Niners to have a good season this year. Could I be the left tackle? Doug loves to sing worship music, right? Our very great Doug Stevens. Could he replace Justin Bieber at the top of the top 40 hits, Billboard hits chart this week? I kind of doubt it. As much as he loves Jesus, I'm glad Willie's voice is coming through the speakers, right? He makes a joyful noise, not a beautiful melody. Could I join the NFL? Could Doug become a pop singer? I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I think there's a context to what he's saying when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is Paul saying? I think if we read it in context, we see that Paul is saying he can face any situation that arises in his work to advance the gospel among the people who've never heard it because Jesus is infusing strength into him. When he is on mission for the gospel... And there are lots of resources and money's coming in. 
he can still preach the gospel. But when times are tough and nobody's by his side and he's alone, he can do all things because it's Christ who's giving him strength. When his stomach is full and when his stomach is empty, it matters not because in any situation, he is content with the strength that Christ is infusing into him. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength as he sits under house arrest in Rome. Paul's purpose is not that the Niners would win or that a worship song would hit the top of the billboard charts. Paul's purpose is that people who don't know Jesus would know him. And he will endure anything so that that news will be spread to the world. And he will do all things through Christ who strengthens him to that end. How did Paul find contentment? Why did he say, I'm not speaking of being in need? How could he say he doesn't have a need when he so clearly does to us? I think it's because Jesus was generous toward him. Paul knew Jesus was generous toward him. Jesus gave his life for Paul so that Paul could give his life to Jesus. Jesus shed his blood for Paul so that Paul could go out in that strength and shed his blood for others. Jesus' body was bruised and broken. He faced hunger And in his strength, Paul could go out and face brokenness for the world around him. How could Paul say he doesn't have a need? Because Jesus' generosity toward him was enough. It was enough. Paul was not saying that when he accepted a gift from the Philippians, he had some need that Jesus didn't meet. Instead, he was saying, I rejoice in your generosity toward me because in it I see a reflection of Christ's generosity toward you. They were becoming like Jesus. And in that, Paul rejoiced. Listen, when you experience Jesus' generosity toward you, you can't help but become generous like him. Have you experienced that? Do you know what that's like? We'll come back. Ponder that. So Paul rejoiced that the Philippians were generous and they sent him a gift. We would ask the question, how were the Philippians generous? What does gospel generosity look like? Um, Let's go back to the text. Paul writes, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. How are the Philippians generous? I think the first thing we see is that they were generous in provision. Paul said that the Philippians entered into partnership with him in giving and receiving. This in Greek is an accounting term. It meant very clearly they paid his bills. He had a need, they provided for it. This was not 
We heard you're in trouble and we sent you through the prayer chain. Though I'm sure they did something like that. This was not a Hallmark card saying, thinking of you, love the Philippians. Though that was probably included with the gift, right? This was not, hey buddy, let me know how I can help, assuming there was actually no way for them to help. The Philippian church literally pooled their money together, wrote a check, and sent it to Paul. Maybe not literally wrote a check. If I'm going to say literally, I shouldn't say there was a check because I don't think they had those back then. They literally pooled their money and sent it to Paul. Now I get to qualify like Paul did. I want to say I hate talking about money. I don't hate talking about money because Jesus never did it or Paul never did it. I hate talking about money because too many people have been hurt by churches who guilt their people into giving. They use coercion and stress and pressure to get people to give. I'm not about to do that. And in fact, if you ever hear Doug or I using guilt or coercion to motivate giving, Please stop and keep your money and call us out. There is no place for that kind of wickedness in the church of God. We are not pressured into giving. There is a freedom in Christ that Paul talks about all the time, and we will stand there with Paul saying, at City Light, we do not speak of being in need so that you must give your money or else the mission of God will fail. We will not say that. Instead, we'll stand with Paul and say, Jesus has provided for and will provide for his mission fully now and always and will trust in him. And if you feel led to be a part of that, we will rejoice, but we will not demand it. This is not a tithe or else kind of message. And in light of that, I do want to point out, though, that the Philippians gave money. Paul. And in that, Paul rejoiced. There was something happening there where in joy, they gave money and in joy, Paul received it and the mission of God moved forward. There's something there and we can't ignore it if we're going to preach the whole word of God. And so that's where we're going to go. How were the Philippians generous? They gave money. Okay. Paul said, not that I seek the gift, not that I seek the money, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What's he say? How can he say that? That is not what I think the Bible's supposed to say. He said, not that I seek the gift, but I do seek something. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul's saying you get something for giving. I don't seek the gift itself, but when you give, fruit is born and credit gets somehow accounted back to you. I thought giving was supposed to be altruistic. You give expecting nothing in return. In fact, I think Jesus said something about that in Luke, right? Jesus did say, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. If Jesus said, expect nothing in return, what is Paul saying? That he uh, seeks the fruit That increases to your credit. Don't we give without expecting in return? As Christians, isn't that what we're called to do? Do you know what comes after the dot, dot, dot there? 
Jesus said, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Paul said he didn't seek the gift, but he seeks the fruit that increases to your credit. Jesus said that when you lend, expecting nothing in return, sounds like giving to me, lending, expecting nothing in return. When you lend and expect nothing in return, your reward will be great. Now, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I'm not here to say that when you give to Jesus, your return will beat the stock market because it's an altogether different kind of investing and it's a different kind of return. So listen, if you have an almond, you can do a couple things with it. You can eat it and it'll nourish your body today and you'll need more tomorrow. The return on investment of eating it is temporary. If you plant it, it'll grow. It'll sprout and grow and one day it will produce. And on that day, you'll have a lasting source of nutrition, something that endures. It's a different kind of investment. One is temporary and one is eternal. Now listen, if you invest your money in the stock market or mutual funds or money market accounts or CDs or savings account or whatever flavor you choose, there's wisdom there. And we should do that. But you should know this. The return on that investment is temporary. You will one day give it up. The state will probably get some, some lawyer will get some, and your heir might get the rest, right? There's something different about investing in the kingdom of God and the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said he rejoiced in the Philippians' gift because the fruit of their gift was accounted to their credit. Jesus said the reward for giving will be great. We cannot deny that there is a divine economy. The way that we use our money now means something. God blesses the financial sacrifices of his people. And the gospel advances when God's people give generously to the mission Let me give an example. We have new carpet in this building today because somebody gave their money. We have this building to worship in and these seats to sit on because somebody gave their money. Our kids are learning about Jesus on nice chairs and short tables with snacks because somebody gave their money. Doug and I get to put food on our family's table. Praise Jesus, because somebody gives money. We get to take the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the world with parties in the park and service projects because somebody gave their money. God blesses the financial generosity of his people with gospel advancement. It happens, and Paul talks about it. When God's people see the generosity that he has bestowed on them and they respond with generosity, somehow, in some way, there's a reward. And there's something credited to your account. 
I don't know what it means, but I don't want to be a people who miss out on it. I don't want to be a church that misses out on that kind of blessing. And so City Light, I pray that we would know ever more deeply the generosity of Jesus Christ toward us and the response of generosity toward a world that needs that same love so that we don't miss the blessing and neither does our community around us. How were the Philippians generous? They were generous in provision. They were also generous in partnership. Paul said, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It's kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. The Philippians were the only ones that partnered in sharing Paul's trouble. How did the Philippians express generosity to Paul? They did it in provision and partnership. They shared in his trouble. I think there are a couple ways they did that. I think, one, they actually sacrificed to be generous to Paul. It means they actually gave something up. Um, Paul wrote in his letter to the Second Corinthians this about the church in Philippi and a couple other churches in their region. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's where Philippi was. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, get this, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Could you imagine this being written about you? Here's the equation. This is nuts. Severe affliction... An abundance of joy already. How do those go together? The churches of Macedonia in severe affliction with an abundance of joy and extreme poverty. All that added together equaled an overflowing wealth of generosity. How does that work? Philippi was a rich Roman colony. It was actually an extension, considered an extension of Rome, the most wealthy city known to the world. They were a rich, wealthy Roman colony. But the Philippian church, Paul says, was experiencing extreme poverty. Imagine walking through West O every day and the mansions with huge yards and swimming pools and four-car garages with beautiful cars and then walking to North Omaha and having to go to bed there in poverty. It's not that much different what the Philippians were experiencing than what some people experience here. In the midst of an extremely wealthy society, the church was very poor financially. 
But in the midst of their affliction and their poverty, they somehow had an abundance of joy and an overflowing wealth of generosity. This says they weren't just giving according to their means, but beyond it. That means they didn't go into credit card debt so that they had a wardrobe that matched this year's fashion. They didn't buy a car whose minimum payment they couldn't afford. They didn't live beyond their means as consumers. They lived beyond their means, earnestly begging to relieve the saints. How did the, how did the Philippians share in Paul's troubles? They sacrificially gave out of their own poverty beyond their means so that his poverty was relieved. They were generous. That's not all. They didn't just financially sacrifice. They actually entered into Paul's trouble, right? If they were giving beyond their means, they were giving up food on the table so that Paul could eat. They were giving up a potential rise out of poverty so they would stay there and Paul didn't have to. How did the Philippians enter into partnership with Paul to share in his troubles? They gave generously to relieve Paul's needs instead of their own. They became partners. They said, Paul, when you suffer, we will suffer too. We're in this boat together. We won't live in a blissful ignorance of the fact that there is a missionary somewhere else in the world who's struggling in hunger and poverty. We won't tuck our heads so deeply into the folds of our own world that we can't see yours. We're not going to do that. We will see you. We will join you. We will love you. We will support you. We will partner with you. The Philippians were generous in provision and partnership. They took on the same struggles that Paul was experiencing so that his struggles could be made better. Paul rejoiced. And he's not the only one that rejoiced. Their generosity pleased God. Paul writes, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul rejoiced. God was pleased when the Philippians were generous. Do you see Jesus in them yet? The Philippians were becoming like him. They were denying themselves so that others might prosper. They were sacrificing their own well-being so that others could be relieved. Is this not what Jesus did for us? Here's a picture of what Jesus has done. He lived in perfect union with his Father in heaven, in paradise, perfect relationship in heaven and nothing was wrong and we see in John 1 in the beginning was the word Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God they were together united in relationship and harmony and paradise and together they created everything that has been created And as they looked out over creation, they saw sin enter. And Jesus saw the plight of men. His Father's good creation was dying with no hope of redemption of their own accord. Jesus refused to leave them that way. 
He wouldn't stay in paradise that he'd always known. He wouldn't stay there in glory while his people were suffering. No, he saw them. And you remember the words of Paul earlier in Philippians. He said this about Jesus. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up heaven and emptied himself of it. The master creator became the servant to the created. He gave up glory and took on our form. And he obeyed his father by giving their creation everything he had, even up to death on a cross. It was totally, completely, and utterly generous. It's an unparalleled and unmatchable gift, undeserved by any who would receive it. And when that act of generosity is realized in the hearts of men, we cannot but reflect it. In light of that generosity, we are drawn into the same. And when we become a generous people, it pleases God. The Philippians are only one example. Let me give you a couple more as we end. Look at Moses. In Hebrews, the writer writes this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was the grandson of Pharaoh adopted into the family. He had all the treasures of Egypt at his disposal. When the Hebrew people were beaten and enslaved, Moses, a Hebrew, was exalted and glorified. And what did he do? He said, I consider the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking to his reward. Moses gave it all up so that he might get the reward of Christ. He chose mistreatment and reproach for the sake of Christ rather than the treasures of Egypt. He gave up his life to the one, day who, to the one who would one day give eternal life to all of his people. He gave up the treasures of Egypt so that he could treasure Christ. When Jesus explained what the kingdom of God was like, As he walked on this earth, he gave back-to-back parallels in the book of Matthew, and this is what they say. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Once you see the generous gift... You cannot value anything else in rivalry. Moses gave up the treasures of Egypt so that he could treasure Christ. The man gave up everything he had. He sold it so that he could buy the treasure in the field, the kingdom of heaven. The merchant sold everything he had so that he could get the pearl. Jesus, our own Messiah. It says he... uh, 
endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy that was set before him. He gave up his own life for the joy that was set before him. The Philippians gave beyond their means to support Paul. When the Philippians experienced the generosity of Jesus, they became a wildly generous people. City Light, has God been generous to you? Has he not been generous to you? It is who he is. It is at the core of his character. May we be a people who deeply and regularly experience the generosity of Christ and in return become a generous people for the good of our world and the glory of God.